0: Sometimes when we come to an Easter message, an Easter thought, sometimes we just, oh, we, we, we celebrate the resurrection. We can move on to other things. But uh, to be honest with you, it's really a foundation for greater things. And so we're going to see that this morning as we look in Matthew chapter 28 and be reminded of the resurrection. So I invite you to again turn your Bibles to Matthew 28. And we're going to be reading verses 16 through 20. If you're able to, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. The word of God says, "...then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost." teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Last week was the 120th birthday of a very famous rabbi. Uh, rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson is his name. Most of you here probably haven't heard of that name. Maybe if, How many has heard of that name before? Menachem Schneerson. Probably not too many. I didn't think so. But in Jewish culture, he's actually a very well-known rabbi. Anyways, he celebrated his 120th birthday yesterday. And you say, how, how many people live to see their 120th birthday? Well, the fact is that uh, Rabbi Schneerson, he actually was born in 1902. And he actually was born in what is today part of Ukraine. And uh, moved from there, moved a little bit to Berlin, also to Paris. Eventually made his way and spent the majority of his life in Crown Heights, New York, in uh, 770, he said Parkway. And so that's a very famous uh, area. And he became what is known as the seventh Rebbe or rabbi, famous rabbi, of the Lubavitcher Chabad movement. And so uh, he was very famous. But anyways, it's interesting that uh, he actually passed away in 1994 at the age of 92, and yet, there was birthday celebrations that took place yesterday at the Chabad Center or around the world, but especially there in in uh, in, in uh, Queens. And so, as we think about this, uh, it's interesting that throughout his life, that uh, people actually started noticing things about him, how he is supposed to save people's lives. Even as a young child, he had. I guess, went to the Black Sea and rescued someone who was drowning at nine years of age. All kinds of stories have been told about him and exploits and many even supposed miracles, teachings, things like that. Well, a lot of his followers gained that attention and actually have proclaimed him to be the promised Messiah. And if you go to Israel today, uh, especially when we live there, you will find all across the country, there will be posters uh, printed with his picture. Menachem Schneerson, Mendel Schneerson. And there you'll see his picture, and in Hebrew underneath it, you'll see, long live the King Messiah. And so this is a very, uh, even though it's a small group that does this, it's actually a very outspoken group. Uh, Even in New York City, you'll see pictures of him, the Messiah is here, looking at that. And so some of his followers, is actually, it's interesting, where we, One of the places we used to live, if you go along Highway 1, which goes from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, you will look at the, the south end of the road, you will actually see an exact replica of the Chabad house that's in, in New York City, that, which is where he was, he was uh, the famous rabbi of. And so he, they have a very vocal and strong presence all across the world. And so they are there to promote his, his, uh, his message. And so it's interesting, in New York City... I'm not sure if exactly the same way anymore, but basically the, the building is divided up into two parts, and I forget which ones which. But one part, the upper or lower part, they believe that uh, Schneerson is the Messiah, and so they'll be in that. The other part of the building, they don't believe is the Messiah, but they still adhere to his teachings, and so that's that's the difference in that. So it's interesting, interesting group. But there was last week there was a big celebration on the 120th birthday. Of Schneerson. Now you're probably thinking, what's so significant about 120 years of age? In Hebrew, if you wish someone a happy birthday, Brother Samuel, I would say to you, happy birthday. In Hebrew, I would say, which is happy birthday, happy day of your birth is a literal translation. But uh, anyways, and then I would say until you're 120. That's the common birthday greeting in Israel. And May you have a happy birthday until you're 120. Why? Because that's how old Moses was when he died. Okay? And so it's a blessing of Moses. All right? And it's, today it's not taken literally. It's just a, a, it's a nice way of blessing people. That's how it's taken. Uh, but nonetheless, so that's why it was a big deal last week to celebrate the 120th birthday of Menachem Schneerson. Long King, live King Messiah. It's interesting that when Schneerson died in 94, that several of his followers waited outside of, near his grave expecting him to rise again. In fact, there are some that believe that he actually still is alive and is somewhere doing deeds and is waiting for his appearing. Again, this is not a huge group, but it's, it's a, a vocal group, I would say. But nonetheless, they are still waiting for that Messiah. So it's interesting that they believe in a Messiah who died and will come again. That's what this small group of the Chabad Lubavitchers believe. Anyways, interesting little story. Um... But let's let's focus on something that's interesting. We do believe in a Messiah. A Messiah, an anointed one who will come as king to this earth. Okay? And we believe that the Messiah, Messiah has come and suffered according to Isaiah fifty three, Isaiah twenty two, and, and many other passages that we can point to. And that the Messiah truly did suffer, and he suffered for the sins of his people. Okay? I As we think about that, the Messiah, we believe, is Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah. Even John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. For those who were there on Wednesday night, we had a Passover Seder. We looked at the Messiah, Jesus, in the Passover. I hope those who came enjoyed it. If you missed out, hopefully we'll do it again next year. All right? So come and make your spot available for that. But we focused on Jesus being the fulfillment of the Passover, the Passover Lamb. And so Jesus died. He was buried according to scriptures, and he rose again according to the scriptures the third day. And then, what happened? A lot of times we kind of move on with our our Christian life, our messages and all that. But I want to take today to focus on what I call the message on the mountain. The message on the mountain. And so, life had changed forever for the disciples after the resurrection of Jesus. Even though they had abandoned him, and even, like Peter, denied him, Jesus lovingly appeared to his disciples... ...and called them to serve him. We see, and we believe this, that the resurrection is a fact. It's the foundation of the message that Jesus would give to disciples. You know, without the resurrection, as Paul says, there is no hope. There's really no gospel if we don't have the resurrection. We talked about even last week. If you notice in the early church how the gospel was presented... ...it always included the resurrection. When you share the gospel with others... And make sure to understand that Jesus, yes, died for you, for your sins. He was buried, but he rose again. He's alive forevermore. All right? Be, be assured of that, okay? It's a fact. It's the foundation. But you see, after Jesus rose from the dead, he gave instructions to his disciples to meet him in a mountain in Galilee. We talked about that last week. Uh, look with me back in chapter 28, verse 7. Jesus said, or or the angel said to the the women, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him as I have told you. Okay, and then later on, Jesus says personally to them, Verse 10, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there they shall see me. Now, we don't know the exact timing of when this event took place. We know that later in the day, Jesus, remember, he appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Later on that evening, he appears in the upper room with his disciples. And later on, of course, we know about Thomas. So somewhere after that Sunday, anyways, Jesus now meets them in the Galilee. Now, remember from Jerusalem, which they were at, to Galilee at that time, of course, they didn't have uh, buses or trains, things like that. They walked by foot. It would take them a couple days to get up there. But nonetheless, they would go to the Galilee. And as they came there, it's interesting here in verse 16 that the 11 disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed So they obeyed, they obeyed his command. Okay? Now as we think about this, it says here in verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Okay? In other words, that they came and they did in fact see the Lord, and they worshipped him. I think, And I was challenged by this, I was hearing a preacher, I think on the radio, mentioning this, that when we think about people who encounter Jesus... A lot of times, I think, uh, maybe you've heard it, that you know when we get to heaven, when we see Jesus, we'll give Jesus a big hug, a high five, and we're just going to have a celebration. And, and I think that we will celebrate for sure, but if you look consistently in the scriptures, those who really encounter Jesus, their first reaction is worship. Amen. Their first reaction is worship. That's what we should strive for, and that's where our attention should be, Okay. So anyways, they worship, but it says some doubt. And the word doubt here does not have the in- implication of unbelief. It's not talking about unbelief. They believed in Jesus. In fact, they obeyed him in doing that. This is talking about hesitation. In other words, they're kind of like rubbing their eyes. Are, is this for real? Think of that. If you were in their sandals, so to speak, okay, put yourself in their, your, their sandals, how would you react? I think a very similar way. We probably would have been, uh, is this real? Is this really happening? And Jesus is there now assuring them... In a magnificent way of that. So again. Let's talk a little bit about that mountain. Now they come to that mountain. And of course we don't know the exact location. Of this mountain. uh, But it's in the Galilee area. We do know though that the disciples of course were very familiar with this area. Having grown up there. Of course they were fishermen at the Sea of Galilee itself. Uh, And we know that Jesus. Most of his earthly ministry took place in the Galilee. Including several miracles that he had performed. uh, Especially in the city of Capernaum. So now Jesus is kind of wrapping up his earthly ministry. He had finished his death, burial, and the resurrection of the cross, the purpose of why he came to this world. And now it's in that 40-day period where he's about to ascend back into heaven. So within that gap, within that framework, Jesus comes here to the Galilee, to a mountain. And it was It's very special. I think that's interesting. If you look at the Gospel of Matthew, uh, it kind of f- focus on bookends. Matthew chapter 5, and Dave's been going through this, the Beatitudes, Jesus takes his disciples or his followers to a mountain and gives the greatest sermon ever told, okay? And then what happens? Here at the very end of Matthew, it's like bookends. Here's another mountain, maybe the same mountain. We don't know. But perhaps, at least in the same area, vicinity, that, that took place. So it serves as bookends for that. So now as he's about to finish his ministry, Jesus returns one more time, to a mountain to give an important command to his disciples, a command that would set them on a course to turn the world upside down with the message. This command, as we see here, and we've quoted many times, especially when we do our missions conference, this is known as the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, especially verses 19 and 20. This command is significant, though, in recent events. I like what one commentator said: this, that the death, or excuse me, the defeat at Golgotha. Has turned into triumph in Galilee. I love that. The defeat or the apparent defeat at Golgotha has turned into triumph in Galilee. Okay? This transformation brings us to a dynamic conclusion, which is really more of a beginning than an end. You know, when you go to a graduation ceremony, it's usually called a commencement ceremony because it's not really the end. ...of your life. is really kind of a beginning. It's a new chapter, a new beginning, if you will, of that. That's exactly what's happening. This is a transformation moment for his disciples. And so it's interesting as we look at these verses now... ...that the Gospel of Matthew presents Jesus as king. And that is a recurring theme throughout the book, okay? So now, look with me in verse 18. It says here, And Jesus came and spake unto them, unto his disciples, saying... All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So the word, I want to kind of start out here. The word power here is really the idea of authority, is the idea. It's as a king has rule and power or authority over his kingdom. That's the idea that we have here. And so from this verse, think with me back of how the gospel, how Matthew presents Jesus in this gospel. You know, at the very beginning, how, how is Jesus represented? In Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is presented at, by lineage. The son of David, the son of Abraham. I talked with uh, some folks, I think it was on Wednesday night, about the, how important it, that was. That is extremely Jewish. His lineage is very important. Usually we, we read genealogies try to get us to go to sleep at night, right? But it's extremely important as we see that. The lineage of Jesus Christ. Jesus is presented with a royal Davidic lineage, his family line. He is the son of David. Okay. Number two, we see that Jesus is presented as the true king of the Jews in Matthew chapter 2. We talked about a couple weeks ago that in Matthew chapter 2, the wise men come from the east, and they, go, don't, go, they don't go to Bethlehem. They go first to all to Jerusalem to see Herod, and they ask Herod, the king, where is he that is born king of the Jews? That got Herod in a, uh, well, he was not happy, put it that way, okay? But anyways, but but Matthew is presenting Jesus as the true king of the Jews as opposed to Herod, the pseudo-king of the Jews. Pretty amazing when you think about that. We also see through Jesus' life, his earthly ministry, Jesus taught with all authority, not as the scribes did. Jesus also, later on, mentions in chapter 9 that Jesus had power or authority to forgive sins. Who else can do that except God? This is in his earthly ministry. Now, in verse 18 here that we're reading, now Jesus is saying he has all power and authority. Amazing when you think about that. Jesus is here, standing here on the mountain as king. As king over Israel, but also king over the world. Pretty amazing. Amazing. We see also, and we talked about this a few weeks ago again, Jesus is presented as king in Jerusalem during his crucifixion as king of the Jews. Okay, And again, that was kind of to Pilate's way of kind of making fun of Jesus or maybe even the Jewish people for that matter. But nonetheless, it's, it's ironic that Jesus was in fact that king that was decreed. Jesus, is interesting that was being promised as king of the Jews in chapters 1 and 2, or king, king of Israel, is now revealed as king of the nations and over heaven and earth. It says again in verse 18, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. It says, go ye therefore and teach all nations. In other words, his rule is going to be over all the world, Jew and Gentile, as we see here. So this is again presenting Jesus as the king. So again, what another thing that's important to understand here that Jesus' declaration of authority here in verse eighteen reassured his disciples in the moment of their hesitancy or in their doubting. So as the disciples worship and as they doubt, they were hesitant, Jesus is proclaiming this all power, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. In other words, they had nothing to fear except to trust their sovereign Lord. Just trust the king. That's a beautiful, beautiful picture right here. So what this is, this, because Jesus now is giving this authority, he's relaying this authority, because of this authority that Jesus has, he is therefore commanding the disciples to go. To go, you therefore, and teach all nations. It is this authority, it's not just for the disciples, but for us as well as believers, as followers of Jesus, and as a church, that his authority is to send us, his authority guides us, and his authority empowers us. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear when our Lord is there. He is the king. We have to think of Jesus in that, in that way as we look at what we know as the Great Commission. It's interesting here. What is the purpose of the Great Commission, this message on the mountain? The purpose of the message of the mountain was given to proclaim the glory of God to the nations. Let me say this, and we'll kind of talk about it a little bit more later, that missions itself is not so much about sending missionaries, about giving to missions. It's not even so much about seeing souls saved. The most important thing is this, that God receives all glory and praise, regardless of the results. This is the focus of the Great Commission. The message of the mountain was given to proclaim the glory of God to the nations. Why is that? Because the nations don't glorify God. They don't glorify God. They don't know how, okay? So what do we do? We proclaim the glory of God through Jesus Christ and what he has done, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. One thing I am happy about here at Victory Baptist Church, and for many, many years has been this way, but we've had a strong emphasis on missions in our missions program. In fact, during our business meeting here a little later today, we'll be talking about missions and seeing how, how the Lord will direct in that. Uh, but I'm delighted to see that we have now 20 missionaries, ...in 14 different countries. Just this past week, one of our newest missionary families that we began supporting... ...is Mark and Emily Mariner and Baby Faith, okay? And uh, this last week, uh, actually last Wednesday, they arrived at the mission field, okay... They are going to Suriname, but their initial stop is, first of all, going to be in Guyana, working with veteran missionaries, kind of getting established there, and then start making survey trips into Suriname, the country just south of them, and then eventually beginning a ministry there in Suriname. Well, they arrived. On Wednesday, they had, what is it, was a 15, 16 pieces of luggage that they brought in. They got there, and they're, they're now living, they're trying to get ready to move into an apartment. And uh, as Mark and Emily are, are getting settled there, they started going to church that first night. I don't know about you. I'd have jet lag and everything else. But th- they went to church. And they're already being involved in the ministry. They're learning from some of the veterans already that are there. And they're excited to being there. Well, just yesterday, Mark shared that uh, he was able to lead uh, a young man to the Lord already. Just in the first couple of days of his ministry there. Praise God for that. But we see here this, that God is doing a great thing by sending forth his, by, through his power. He sends, he guides, and he empowers. He equips those for the work. We praise God for servants like Mark and Emily Mariner and many others, again, our families that are serving all over the world for that. And that's something that we endeavor. This is a big part of our, our ministry right here. In fact, it is the, the focus of our ministry that the gospel goes forth. So let's kind of break down now what exactly is the Great Commission and how does this give glory to God? Well, the command that we have as we look here at verses 19 and 20, if Jesus has all power or all authority over all creation to Israel and over the nations here, heaven and earth, the command is now given, verses 19 and 20, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So the first command that we see here, believe it or not, the command isn't actually go. That is not the command the command is actually to teach all nations. The word teach all nations here actually means to make disciples. That is the command, to make disciples. To be a disciple is to, to, or to make disciples, what does that look like? It is to become a follower, a pupil, an apprentice. You know, when we talk about education, a teacher teaches students, but you know as well as I do that your student... For those who have been teachers or are teaching, you understand this completely. You can teach all day and all night, but the student probably can take it or leave it, right? They might do enough to pass the test, and then they go on. But the difference is in making disciples is not just teaching, but really making them an apprentice that they will become like their master, that they will become like their teacher. In other words, when we make disciples, our ultimate goal is to point people to Jesus Christ so that they will... Talk like him, walk like him, live like him, glorify the Father, oh, be obedient to the Father, just like Jesus. That's not just being a mere student, that's being an apprentice. That's being a follower, if you will. And so, walking in, there's actually an old saying that was back during the first couple centuries of walking in the dust of the rabbi. In other words, the followers of the rabbi, the teacher, that the the students would follow close enough in the dust of the rabbi. In other words, to basically even get the dust that's off his sandals so it will become a part of his life. A a student of a rabbi would have eat when he eats, sleep when he sleeps, go where he goes, wear clothes like him, everything, exactly like the master. And that's, in a way, that's how we should be in following after Jesus, to be Christ-like. That's our goal, okay? So how does one become a disciple, though? I think the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 17, explains this well. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So one becomes a disciple, first of all, by hearing the word. Next part is by believing the word. And then thirdly, to submit to the word. That's how you become a disciple. Hearing, believing, and submitting to the word, to what God has given us. That's how we become disciples. Question for you, are you doing that? Have you heard the word of God? concerning Jesus Christ have you believed on him who God has sent have you believed on Jesus and are you submitting to them or are you kind of like i can do my christian life my own way i like uh, had someone tell me it's been some time ago now but they said well we invite him to church and said well i go to my own church oh really where's that well i just go out in the woods and i have you know i go up in my deer stand or i just send that and the other and you know i have my time with my time with god That is not God's design for the church, folks. It's a gathering of believers. It's not so much the building, although we steward that, but it's a gathering of believers. That's what the church is. You can't gather with believers when you're by yourself at the deer stand. All right? (laughs) You can't have good fellowship. Unless you're with a deer, then, you know. Anyways, I'll leave that to yourselves, all right? But nonetheless, here's the point. We need to be in the Word of God to be following Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, it goes together. So then, what does making disciples look like? What does it mean to teach all nations, or to make disciples? And actually, there are three adjectives. Okay, we're going a little bit into English, okay, that's okay. There are three adjectives that really help us understand what teaching all nations, or making disciples look like. And the first is actually, start beginning of verse 9, go, going. In the Greek, this is actually an adjective. So put an I-N-G on it. Going, therefore. And that's the idea. This is a, not the command. It's an adjective. And the idea is this. As you are going, you're moving. You're constantly moving, okay? As you are going, make disciples. That's the idea. This is really an extension from going from... Remember when Jesus commanded the, the 70, his disciples... Uh, anyways, he says, Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel... And Jesus himself later on said that as well. But now he's, it's an extension to the Gentiles as well. So here's the idea of going from the Jew first and also the Gentile. That's the priority of Jewish missions. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That is simply not an order of history. No, that is a principle in missions that we must have a priority in Jewish missions. This was also followed even by the disciples and by the apostles... The Apostle Paul, for example, in the book of Acts, his regular practice was this. When he went into a city, he would first of all go to the synagogue to preach Jesus Christ. And when the doors were closed, he would go to the Gentiles. This is a pattern that we consistently see in the scriptures. This is a pattern that should be here at Victory Baptist Church, that we should not neglect the Jewish people with the gospel of their Messiah, Jesus Christ. To withhold the gospel from the Jewish people is the greatest act of anti-Semitism. When you think about it. Jesus Christ came to his own. His own received him not, but as many as received him. To them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, both Jew and Gentile. We can't forget the Jews. Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they must be saved. That should be our heart's desire as well. This is something that is very important, I believe, as we go. Our going. How do you make disciples? It's by going. How do you make disciples? The next part is, is by baptizing. It says here in verse uh, 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Baptizing here as Jesus Christ has commanded here. Again, this is not a command, but again an, a, an adjective, baptizing. Okay. And how do we baptize? Jesus gives the instructions here that we be baptized, literally the idea is, into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. We know as well that baptism itself does not save someone. Rather, it is an outward sign of an inner faith, what Christ has done in. In other words, salvation, that's what God does for me. Baptism is kind of what I do for God. It doesn't save us, but it's a public declaration. It's a public identity that I belong to Jesus. When we go in the waters of baptism, and of course our Baptist is right here. By the way, we'd love to have another baptism soon, Okay. All right. If you have never followed the Lord in believers' baptism, guess what? We're Baptists. That's a part of it. Did you know this? That uh, I think it was uh, John Macarthur who mentioned this. That he believes that about fifty percent of Christians have never followed in believers' baptism before. Fifty percent, and I would say even in Baptist churches, that's surprising. So if you've never followed, obey the Lord and do that. We rejoice with you. What happens in baptism? We show the death, burial, and the resurrection. When you go into the water, it represents the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the water represents his burial. Coming up out of the water represents his resurrection. And for that we rejoice and we encourage you to walk in newness of life. What a joy that is to see people follow the Lord. In other words, this is the identity of a, of a disciple. A disciple is one who follows, who believes, and who submits to the Lord. And by seeing that in baptism, that's a great illustration of the gospel. We see that by baptizing, we do it into the triune name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. This is, again, the representing of the Trinity. That's right here. It's clearly presented here. And the third aspect of making disciples is by teaching. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. You see, what is happening here is that Jesus, for these three and a half years, has been the teacher, the master, and now he is turning it over to his disciples to now become the teachers as well. The student becomes the teacher. The disciples become the leaders, and that's exactly what happened in the early church. This is life-touching life, is what happens, life-touching life, and that is what discipleship is all about. To make, I like what one commentator says, to make disciples is not complete unless it leads one to a life of following Jesus' commandments. Let me say that again, to make disciples is not complete until, unless it leads one to a life of following Jesus' commandments. I think it's, it's, it's sad when you think of it that even in good churches who do preach the gospel, when someone gets saved and even baptized, they rejoice. But then all they say is, that just, just go to church. That's it. We become spectators. God's will for your life is not just to sit on a pew of Victory Baptist Church. He wants you to follow him. He wants you to serve him. He wants you to be obedient to him. And by encouraging and building up the body of Christ together, we need each other, folks. It's moments like this where I look at how God has used us even in the midst of of, uh, Roger Myers and his, his home going. I have seen the church come together in a wonderful way of prayer for him. When we do our prayer meetings, and Scott, I'll tell you this, Wednesday night prayer meetings, we stop and we pray for Roger Myers and Marcy and the family. We've seen people go and bring food. Sending cards, text messages, calls, whatever it may be, an outpouring of love. We saw that happen too when, when Andy Sherbing passed away here at the beginning of the year. We've seen our church come together to serve one another during these times. Again, you can't have your church, if you're sitting out in your deer stand or in your, or in your bass boat, you can't encourage the body of Christ by doing it that way. Folks, we need to be together. We need to do it to work together here, you know, following the command of Jesus Christ. Paul told Timothy... Thou, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who should be able to teach others also. That's the idea. It should be repeating itself. One of my heartbeats here at Victory Baptist Church is that we would see intergenerations together. We have a healthy church is a church that has many levels of generation in it. And according to Titus, that the older men teach the younger men, the older women teach the young, I won't say older, mature women teach the younger women, all right? But we see an intergenerational network, and that's a healthy church that it should be. And I'm thankful for Victory Baptist Church that we have that. But let's make that a, a focus that we have here. But we see, I want to kind of conclude this message here by looking at the promise, the promise of God's presence. As we go into the world To make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. You can say this, by evangelizing, baptizing, and stabilizing. That's the idea. We look now at the promise of the presence, which says this, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. It's interesting here that this here is a promise. It's not just a promise. It's a fact. Jesus is with us. This promise also forms bookends of Matthew's gospel. We kind of look at the comparisons of that. But notice how Matthew's gospel uh, starts out. The angel told uh, Joseph and Mary that you'll have a son. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And here in, at the end of it, he says, I am with you always. This is sort of the I am's, God with us in Matthew 1. And now Jesus is saying, I am with you. This forms as bookends of the book of matthew that we see here as jesus says i will be with you as king and he will do this to the end of the world the end of the world really has the idea more of the end of the age uh, the the word world here is e- eon or we get the word eon or a period of time as we see here and at this end of the age indicates that god has a plan he is lord of all history remember his, history is his story as the church follows his leading and obeys his word, they fulfill his purposes, bringing glory to God. Meanwhile, what should we do until he returns? Be faithful. Be faithful. It's interesting, the first sermon that I can remember preaching is actually uh, with uh, Brother Ken Prophet. He asked, when I told him I was called to preach, uh, Pastor Prophet told me, okay, you're, you're speaking two weeks from now. That was my introduction. <laughs> so the first sermon I preached was from Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. I really don't remember much of what I said. I think somewhere out there I have an outline. Nonetheless, God used this passage, though, in my life to call me to missions and to serve him wherever he would send me. I often reflect on this passage in the weight of the command of Christ. He has called us, and he has sent us as his ambassadors. You see, the Great Commission, as I said before, is really not so much about missionaries, although he sends them, and it's really not about souls, although he does save them. The message on the mountain is really about the glory of the king who has called us as his servants to be faithful to his come, to His coming and making disciples. Let's look to have ways how people can follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our heartbeat. That is the message on the mountain. Think of it as the king giving his decree and his promise, I will be with you. I will be with you. Let us rejoice in that. I don't know about you, but maybe the Lord has spoken in your heart I pray as we look at even missions, missions is not a program of the church, it's the program of the church, when we think about that. We pray that the Lord would strike in our hearts and encourage us to follow Him and see others come to know the King of kings and Lord of lords.